tickets are on sale right now for our next big exam room live and in person. This one is a night honoring the legendary Esselstyn family for their immeasurable contributions to make the world a healthier place. Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, his wife, Anne, Jane Esselstyn, and of course, from Plant Strong, Rip Esselstyn, will all be in the house that night with Dr. Neil Barnard and I. We're going to be looking back at their lifetime of work and forward to how that work is creating a healthier future for us all. What is on the plant-based horizon? Can't wait for it. November 7th in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Club. Would love for you to join us. Get your tickets right now, pcrm.org slash events, or click the link in the episode notes to reserve your seat today. Coming up on The Exam Room. The nurse took my blood pressure, and it was 255 over 115. And I was on two different blood pressure medicines. I was on a beta blocker and a calcium channel blocker. Um, on top of that, my heart rate was uh, over 125. He thought I was going to stroke out right there. He was getting ready to call 911. And of course, I start manipulating like, well, why don't we just wait? And he just sat me down. He said, look, it, you're too sick for surgery. Your heart's not going to make it. And even if it does, he's like, I don't know what you're going to do for the narcotics. Like you're on so much stuff. I don't even know if the anesthesia is going to work for you. So he denied me the surgery and I went to bed that night and I couldn't stop thinking about my mother-in-law. You know, she fought so hard just to live one more day. The doctors even asked her <laughs> towards the end of her life, they're like, what are you hanging on for? She just wanted one more day with her family. And, you know, out of respect for that, I said, I got to try something. My guest today is somebody who is just absolutely extraordinary. Lost nearly 300 pounds, overcame food addiction, overcame addiction to drugs, and today is a walking example of what is possible. And oh, by the way, his health journey now spanned for a decade. Inspiration personified. You know him from Fat Man Rants. This is my friend, Tim Kaufman. Tim, thanks for joining us here on The Exam Room. Hey, Chuck, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm, man, I am just tickled that you're here because when you and I were talking as part of your summit, the Thrive Against All Odds Summit that you have coming up on October 17th, uh, it really struck me how many similarities the two of us have in terms of our health journey. And it really does, it underscores what I really want to dive into today with you, the fact that food can be as addictive as any substance out there on earth, man. You lived it. You know it. Yeah, and unfortunately, I can compare it uh, to something as addictive as, as fentanyl. Um, and I think what makes food you know, even more harmful is because we can get it so easy. It's everywhere. It's accessible and it's quite accepted. Uh, so I think that makes it a tougher challenge. So let's get into this. Something as addictive as fentanyl, that brings us right into your story. How did the seeds of addiction get planted in your life? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take you back if you want. I'll go back to um, kind of my childhood. And at any time, if you want to jump in and, and um, oh, you know, ask you. questions or whatever, I'm all for it. Bring me back, man. Bring us all back. 
All right. So I still live in a small town called Alden. It's about 20 miles east of Buffalo here in New York. Um, It's quite a rural place that I grew up. It's not as rural as it used to be, but basically, um, as I grew up, hunting and fishing were top uh, priority for my family um, and eventually my friends as I got older. Farming was a way of life here. So it was very typical for you to go to high school and have to milk cows before school. And then the bus would drop you off and you'd milk cows for the afternoon milking. Uh, So I kind of grew up on a dairy farm, although we didn't have a farm. That's where I worked. Uh, Probably when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I started working on the farm in the summer. It was a small dairy farm, about 100 cows, 120 cows. Um, and it, I loved the work. I loved what I did. I loved being outside and, uh, working with the animals. And as you know, farm life is quite manual. And as I would be picking up bales of hay, um, I'd notice a little pop in my wrist and, uh, sometimes I'd be walking on uneven ground and I would just like fall down and wipe out. We always thought that I was just accident prone Um, or, you know, I just was clumsy, right? My dad always called me clumsy, but for some reason, I always had a, a really a knack for getting hurt all the time. Well, as time went on, I met my wife, Heather. Um, we were high school sweethearts. We started dating at 14. We're actually going to be married, uh, 30 years in two weeks. So, Hey um, man, congratulations. Yeah. We've been together 35 years. And so we started pretty young. For sure. So she's been with you this this entire journey, including, um, you know, it sounds like uh, pretty close to the time when you were at this farm and discovered that you were, quote unquote, accident prone. So that's where we left off. Pick us up. Yeah. So as I got older, these, uh, you know, these accidents or uh, they turned into dislocations. Um, Heather and I were going to get married. I was just turning 20 when we got married. And I had to get a better job that paid a little bit more money so we could start a life together. So I started as an apprentice, as a a machinist in a factory. And now I started working over my head, which I wasn't used to. Everything before this point was mostly lifting from the ground up. Now I'm up over my head running cranes and things. And my shoulder kept popping out of the socket every time I'd reach for something. And it got to the point where just the pressure when I sneezed in my rib cage would actually dislocate my shoulder. I'd physically have to like pop my shoulder back in the socket. So I went uh, to a doctor to have him check it out. And he said, so my shoulder capsule was like seven times like longer than it should be. And he said, we can fix this up by, you know, cutting into your back, pulling all the tissues that hold your shoulder in tightening them up and sewing you back up and you should be good to go and on your way. Well, when the doctor started the surgery, um, as he's pulling on the tendons and ligaments, trying to move stuff around, he noticed that everything was like bubble gum. And the more they pulled, the more it stretched and they just couldn't get everything tight. So they patched me up as well as they could. And um, when I woke up, they gave me the diagnosis of this thing called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. This is a genetic disease um, that affects the collagen in my body, kind of like the glue in my body. So my collagen is extra stretchy, almost like bubble gum. I don't have a, a severe case. Some people are so severe, they can't even stand up on their own feet. Um, and, and they're a mess. And there's other 
you know, heart problems and stuff, which I don't have, fortunately. But so I have this hypermobile syndrome. And um, when I left the doctor's office, basically he set me up with a specialist. It's a very rare disease. So I was going to like a like um a children's doctor for this, a children's genetic doctor. And basically, I sat in the office with Heather as they're running down what was involved with this disease and what the prognosis was. And he gets out disability papers. And I was just starting a new career. It's like, I'm not going on disability. Like, I have my whole life ahead of me. And he goes, well, unfortunately, your joints are all going to do this. They're going to start breaking down. And you're going to end up in a wheelchair by the time you turn 25. So we might as well get the paperwork in now. And so I refused. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I said, let's take it and, and see what actually happens before we jump the gun here. So I left um, that doctor's appointment, you know, with a, <laughs> took the wind right out of my sails. A, a young guy just starting out, just starting a family. And here I'm going to be on disability or so they said, and probably in a wheelchair by the time I was 25. So emotionally, that was a huge hit. Perhaps the bigger hit uh, came in the form of pills. Um, when I left there, you most of the time you get prescribed a narcotic for acute pain, for a surgery, whatever. Um, but my pain was chronic. And when I first started taking uh, Lortabs or Vicodin, uh, they were really effective. I had never really taken medicine. And I think I had been in pain so long that I didn't know any other thing. And when I started taking these medicines, they kind of took the edge off and they made me feel really good. Did they tell you about the addictive properties just out of curiosity about these pills? No, this was a really bad era. Like I couldn't have picked a better time to go through this. It was like the mid 90s. Um, and yeah, they were prescribing this stuff, you know, like candy, really. Uh, with no regard really for addiction. And so as time went on, obviously, you know, with any narcotic, I built up a tolerance. So the doctor prescribed me more uh, to be, you know, to get to be more effective like it was the first time. And then, you know, when that ran its course, we started up in the different medicines. I went from Lortab to Percocet. Ultimately, I was on Oxycontin. Um, but it was the same process, you know, sometimes it would take longer than others, but sometimes it was just a month where I'd build up a tolerance and it was no longer effective. So at the time, um, this was before, you know, everything was on the internet and ink linked so well with the pharmacy, you could get away with a lot more because scripts were paper and I was seeing a ton of doctors. I was seeing a rheumatoid doctor. Um, my general doctor, surgeons for almost every part of my body. So it was really easy for me to get paper scripts. And at the time, I could just pay cash for them and no one knew what was going on. I mean, I, I'm hearing you say this and I'm just kind of envisioning you just kind of getting sucked down this hole and, and quite rapidly, like you're just in this spiral and maybe even didn't realize it at the time because it had just become your norm. Yeah, and I think I certainly, um, I mean, you could justify why I was taking this for chronic pain. I definitely was in a lot of pain. But at some point, that physical pain switched to an emotional pain. Um, because before I knew it, I was really addicted. And I was doing stuff that I wasn't proud of. I was, you know, lying to Heather, which I had never done before. I was manipulating people. 
Um, and I think that emotional pain of having to deal with that, that guilt and shame, um, far outweigh the physical pain. And I think what people don't understand about addiction is it starts off, you know, trying to get that buzz or that high to feel good, which eventually leads into, oh man, I'm going to get withdrawals if I don't take it. So I need to feel better. And then ultimately where you end up is you use just so you're not sick anymore. There's absolutely no fun, no high, no nothing. You just don't want to be sick. And you could say the same thing about food, really. Mm. So when you you said you began lying to Heather, Heather is your wife here. Uh, what kind of lies were you telling? Were you hiding the medication from her? What was happening there? Yeah, I would always, you know, I would always push it off on the doctors. And in fact, one time I remember she came to an appointment with me. She was really concerned. And she's like, he's taking way too much of this. And the doctor's like, well, he's human. Um, you know, he's got a lot of nerve damage. I was getting like bee stings all over my body. And the doctor kind of was like, yeah, he needs to have this stuff. And I walked out of there like, yeah, see, I told you. Um, but I would have Heather, you know, call the pharmacy and say, you know, <laughs> I would ask her to say, hey, you just spilled these in the toilet or we're going on vacation. You know, I always had like some kind of trick up my sleeve to get more than I was supposed to. So long story short, um, this, eventually I ran out of options and the medicine wasn't even touching me. I was still in massive amounts of pain. And my doctor said, look, it, I want to try this drug um, that will kind of level out the highs and lows. And at the time, I had never heard of it. It wasn't, you know, a big deal. No one, no one even knew what fentanyl was. But he said, I want you to try this transdermal patch. And so I took these patches home. I looked at them. They looked really innocent because it's not even a tablet. It's like a sticker. And I'm like, how could you get medicine through your skin like this? But I put that patch on and it almost took me back to the first time I took Lortab. It was that kind of feeling. Um, and and I felt like I used to back then. So I don't even have to say this because you know what's going to happen. The same cycle, I'm up in the doses, you know, trying to get prescriptions early. So now I find myself at 38, addicted to fentanyl. Uh, while I was on the fentanyl, we never backed off on the pills because those were considered breakthrough drugs. Um, and the idea was to stay ahead of the pain. The time went on with the fentanyl. It was the same same thing. You know, I couldn't wait to get my next prescription uh, that wasn't even really effective anymore anyways. And fentanyl is highly addictive and the withdrawals are, I wouldn't wish them on anyone. They are absolutely awful. Um, but I couldn't sleep at night. And, and people don't understand that sometimes about narcotics that you take them. You're very lethargic. Your eyes are like half open, but you can't get a good night's sleep. Um, so I took matters into my own hands. I grew up in a house. Uh, my parents were very uh, straight laced and I never saw my parents with alcohol or cigarettes. Um, very rarely did they swear. Um, so I didn't grow up around alcohol, but one day I stopped on the way home from work and, um, I picked up a bottle of vodka, 1.75 liter of vodka. I came home that night. I tossed a handful of tablets in my mouth before I went to bed. And the first time I drank, I drank an entire liter of vodka, just drank it like water. My eyes rolled back in my head. I blacked out and 
Unfortunately, this would become a new pattern for years to come. Wow. It happened that fast with the alcohol introduction, the fentanyl. I mean, that's a that's a downward spiral. How long was it between um, the time when you were first prescribed? I think you said Vicodin was maybe the first one and then uh, versus when the vodka was introduced. So I'm, I'm totally just guessing, but certainly um, over five years, maybe seven or eight years. Five years, um, five years. And but, you know, the thing was, like, there was no ramp up. It was just switch on. I didn't boom. drink socially. I didn't drink in front of anyone. I would just get the vodka, bring it home. I would put it in my closet. I stood at one place when I drank. And I was, you know, I would drink a half of that bottle every single night before bed um, out of the same glass. And that just became a new pattern for me. Ironically, I still wasn't getting a good night's sleep. I was up all night. Um, stumbling around trying to get to the bathroom. I was yeah. in really bad shape. Um, at the same time, this is almost embarrassing, but this is kind of what we talked about. Um, food became a very big drug of choice, perhaps taking over everything else. I did the other things just so I could feel normal, but food actually made me happy. Yeah. Um, and I would go to a fast food place. I would sit in the drive through I'd get that same kind of you know, little butterflies in my stomach waiting for them to make, you know, my breakfast sandwiches. Um, I would get up there, pay, I would eat them. And I'd get my temporary two minutes of happy. I'd look down at the wrappers and think, what the heck are you doing? And you're killing yourself. And I would just repeat this whole thing over and over. At my worst, I was eating fast food about four times a day. I'd hit breakfast, I'd hit lunch, um, and I'd hit a snack before we actually ordered out. Mm. Um, most weeks we would order pizza and wings of four or five nights a week. We'd go out to dinner one night a week and very rarely did we cook at home unless it was a frozen food, like a pizza roll or something. Let's unpack that. You know, I I don't want to roll past what it was you said about going to the fast food place and having that little bit of a flutter. That's the excitement that a person gets when they know that they're about to get that fix. They're about to get that rush, that high, that thing that they've been craving all day. And you're right. Like I remember thinking about that every time I would pull into the drive-thru at Taco Bell. Every time they were like, do you want your normal order? And I knew. I was like, man, I'm about like two minutes away from happiness right now. And I would, I would get pumped up for that. And my day revolved around that. I would literally, Tim, plan my day around my trips to Taco Bell. And, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, Boston Market for lunch, 7-Eleven for a big snack on the way home, Papa John's pizza for dinner. You know, my whole day revolved around junk food. And every single time I derived such great joy temporarily from every single bite, man. And it sounds like you were in the same struggle. Um, But as the years rolled by, I mean, just like any good addiction, mine grew and grew and grew. Was it the same way for you? Yeah. And then, you know, you'd start seeing the patterns, the same patterns that happen with the drugs. I would, you know, go get, you know, pick up dinner for us from McDonald's. I'd order two extra, you know, dollar cheeseburgers. They'd be gone and I would purposely hide the wrapper and the receipt and the garbage can before I came in. So yeah, you start manipulating, um, you know, start, you know, being dishonest. You were eating before you ate. And yeah, it's all the same things, you know. And uh, you 
I believe you told me that you would go to the drive-thru and place an order for yourself before you you got home. So basically eating before you would eat, so to speak, uh, and, and hide the evidence. But you would actually, <laughs> weren't you essentially like taking your family's French fries at the same time? Well, yeah, because we had a rule in the house that dad got the baglers, right? So, um, and I'd make sure that I gave everyone their food before mine. And, you know, you purposely give them a couple extra shakes <laughs> on the way in the house. But um, yeah, it's it's crazy, you know, to look back. And, you know, just like the drugs at the time, you know, I couldn't see it. And I couldn't see that that was weird. I couldn't see digging through the garbage, uh, you know, finding an old pizza box and swiping pizza. Like, I didn't see that that was a, a thing. It was, <laughs> it's so wild looking back now, though. Did you ever have a time when, you know, you would hit up something close to the house, you would eat that, and then by the time you get to wherever it is you were going, you were like, eh, let me get a little bit more before I go in there. Did you ever do the the double dip like that? You mean at the same place? At, at the same place, or maybe it was like, I'm going to get a breakfast sandwich from this McDonald's, and oh, by the way, there's another McDonald's right by the office, so let me go ahead and get a second breakfast or whatever before I head inside. Yeah, and you could justify this by saying that, you know, I liked the jalapeno poppers from uh, Mighty Taco, and they went great with a double Whopper. Um, so, yeah, that's how you could justify in your mind that you were going to two places because they, they had two different things. So it all made sense at the time to me, you know. And, and that's another thing that I don't think a lot of people understand is like just how much of a master people who are struggling with addiction and, and this case, we're talking just about food addiction, but we are at not just convincing others, but convincing ourselves that this is normal behavior. I, too, like you, always had a lie at the ready at Taco Bell. And so I just I just had a gut feeling, Tim, that one day they were going to call me out and just tell me that I was eating too much. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened one day. It's like, you know, usually it's, hi, Chuck, do you want your usual? And I'd say, yeah. And they'd be like, well, $20 drive through. Well, one particular day, instead of please drive through, it was, you want your usual? Yeah, you eat too much. But I had the lie at the ready. So as soon as I got to the window, like as bad as I felt emotionally because of that, I was like, yeah, well, you know, this isn't all for me. Like, you guys are crazy. I'm picking this up for the boys back at the office. You know, like everybody's got the standing order. Like, you you know, you guys are nuts. And so... I then went to another Taco Bell forever. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to have that lie at the ready. And it's kind of the same lie that I would tell myself, like, it's okay. It's normal. Don't worry about it. You just like to eat. You're going to be fine, which was a complete and total lie. Complete and total lie. Yeah. In fact, I remember um, ordering three sandwiches and getting three small fries with it just so the workers would think this is for three different people. Because it looked weird if I got three sandwiches and one large fry. Um, yeah, it's crazy what we do, you know? Yeah, that's a that's a good play. I mean, I, I'm looking back, I was like, yeah, that's pretty clever. That one would work. That would work. You know, it, the old 420-pound me recognizes that and just wants to give you a high five. But then, you know, the me today is like, yeah, it's just not the brightest thing in the world. I also no. remember going across the street to Subway when I was still working at, uh, get this, radio station Big 100.3 in Washington, D.C. The, the call letters were WBIG. 
And they had a subway. I can't make this up, man. In in the Shell station across the street. And I would go in there and I would get um, a foot-long cold cut. And then on top of that, I would get a second sandwich, which began as just a six-inch tuna. But then over time, would uh, become also a second foot-long uh, tuna sandwich. And it was just like so much food. But I would go and I would say, well, this is for my colleague. And sometimes I would even have a piece of paper with me, like somebody had yeah. written down their order. And I would just walk back across the street, literally just across the street, not much exercise, and then go to my office and close the door and eat all 24 inches of that every single day and polish that off with Diet Mountain Dew or baked chips because I thought that that was healthier. But I was definitely hiding it to the extent that I could. I was definitely hiding it. But at the same time, I knew that I couldn't hide it so much because how do you hide a 66-inch waist, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. It's embarrassing. Yeah. And for some reason, you don't want people to think you overeat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when you can't even get in and out of a, a car. But yeah, I don't want to keep swapping stories because I don't want to give people ideas. But the the other one was, and this what's wild about this one is I had myself convinced more than I would the person running the cash register that I was getting double the food because it was going to be for my lunch. I had forgotten my lunch. So I was eating breakfast and I would double up with breakfast knowing that I would put that away and that would be my lunch. But the truth was that was all gone before I even got to work and I was going to leave for lunch again anyways. I just figured in my mind, oh, I'm saving a trip and it made sense, but it was just doubling up my food. So so from there, um, the doctors had all also told me, by this time I had to switch careers into um, teaching, so I wasn't using my body for leverage and it was much much easier on my body. But at the same time, uh, the doctors are saying, do as little as you possibly can when you sit. Make sure your elbows are supported. Walk as little as you can because you have very limited time left on your joints. Um, in my mid-20s, I was already loaded with arthritis and my joints were falling apart. So the theory was you only have so many miles left. Don't use them all up now. And so I did exactly what they told me to do. So this whole combination of too much food, um, the alcohol, the drugs, and the limited mobility, obviously, I was spiraling out of control. By the time I was 38, um, I weighed over 400 pounds. The truth is we don't know how much over 400 pounds I weigh. Um, when we went back and interviewed my doctor, he said I was well over 400, but his scale didn't weigh over that. So we don't know how much over 400 I got. I wasn't really interested in that. Anyways, I, to be honest with you, Chuck, I found a little uh, um, comfort when that scale topped out because I'm like, well, he's not going to know how much more I gain now because it's you know it just says XXX across the scale. And so it was a little bit comforting, but at the same time, you know, that thing is hanging over you like, dude, what are you doing? Probably the, the most emotional time I had was getting new school clothes. Um, I can remember just tears streaming down my face. Um, you know, as a 400 pound plus guy, either you, your, your options, as you know, are very limited in the big and tall. And basically, everyone that's over 300 pounds where you work wears the same shirt, maybe a different color or two. But I remember how they're flipping pants over the dressing room for me as I'm out of breath, sweated wet from just from trying clothes on. 
And I remember looking, you know, 50, no, 50 won't work. Go to 52s. And like, I remember just standing there crying, like every school year, it's like, I'm going up and up and up. Like, I didn't know how to stop it. Um, what so what was your biggest waist size? Do you remember? So fifty two, yeah, fifty two. But man, you better back off because and wear safety glasses because they weren't staying together long. <laughs> I, I, I got like really creative yeah. with stuffing pillows under shirts and putting them over the kitchen chair to kind of give them extra room, and I could get away with an an X or two. Uh, smaller than I really needed just by ultra stretching. But you know, when you stretch them out, they get shorter. So oh, yeah, man. Oh yeah. How tall are you? So I'm five ten. Five ten. Okay. So that's that's yeah. pretty pretty good. Yeah, man. It's it's not a competition. I maxed out at 66. And I just remember having panic attacks of getting too big for even the big and tall catalogs. Right. 66 yeah. is about as big as they get in the store. And maybe they have one pair of those. But the catalogs go up to 70, man. And I was like, within a year or two, I'm going to be too big to find anything. And I didn't know what in the world I was going to do at that point. Did your wife have any conversations with you about her concerns about your weight and your health? You know, not really. No. Um, Okay. I think just, you know, you're together all the time and it just... You know, I'm, I'm, I just sent my book to the editor and we were just discussing that yesterday. Um, even my kids, like, cause she wanted to know that how the kids dealt with it, how Heather, but I mean, when you're around someone, it becomes like dad is sick, you know, dad is really overweight. And of course we always rationalize it while well, he can't move because of this disease. So everything was justified. Everything was rationalized. And it all made sense in my head that these were the cards I was dealt. And I was playing them to the best of my ability. I just got a crappy hand of cards. And that's what I chalked it up to. Um, so so I'm going to go real quick. Um, so by the time I was 38, you know, I my weight was out of control. But more than that, um, my kidneys were shutting down. I know there was a couple of days that would go by and I, I couldn't pee. Like I wanted to pee. I just couldn't pee. And I had done enough research to know I was just abusing my body so much with the drugs and alcohol that my kidneys literally shut down. They just couldn't handle it. Um, my heart was pounding so hard, I would lay the remote for the TV on my chest and it would actually jump off my chest and you could see air under it. Um, I had got to the point where I couldn't put my socks and shoes on anymore. I had a lot of trouble just getting out to my pickup truck, uh, much less getting in it. I couldn't get up a flight of stairs without thinking I was going to have a heart attack. Um, so during all this stuff, life as an addict is always focused on yourself, a very selfish. Um, but Heather's mom had gotten kind of a cold flu kind of thing, and she just didn't seem like she was getting better. So we convinced her to go to the doctor and at least get a checkup to put everyone's mind at ease. So she went, uh, they did some blood work, and this is where life takes a huge turn for all of us. Um, Heather's mom was diagnosed with leukemia. And Heather's mom was like a second mom to me. I mean, we were together so young that, you know, I spent just as much time with her mom, maybe more than my own mom. And um, this was a huge blow to us. And we have a a huge cancer research hospital. I feel like a switch uh, just turned on and we're at Roswell Cancer Park. 
um, figuring out who's going to take care of the kids and who's going to stay overnight with mom. And so it put our world into a tailspin. But the one thing that it did for me, um, we always talk about food and food saved my life, but I would have never been open to any change in any diet if it wouldn't have been for going to that cancer hospital. I remember one um, particular time I walked up to, I called her Bobby. I walked up to Bobby's room and she had just was waiting for a transfusion the next morning. She was so tired, so wiped out. Um, we didn't know it at the time, but she didn't have much longer to live. And she opened her eyes really slowly and she said, how's your knee? And it just hit me that day that my whole life I had complained about what was wrong. My knees hurt, my ankles hurt, my shoulder hurts. And here this woman is laying in a bed waiting for a transfusion, hoping that someone donates platelets so she can get them by the end of the week. And she's wondering how my knee was. And I walked out of that hospital thinking to myself, man, my knee hurts, but there's so many people that would do anything to walk into my body and leave this hospital. And there are thousands of people in those rooms. Some of them aren't going to come home. And some of them, if they come home, they're not going to have a leg to complain about. And here I am, so consumed with everything that was wrong, everything I wanted. I never stopped. Take a minute to think of how much I still had and how much I should be grateful for. So I think the first domino that tipped for me was finding gratitude. And I needed that shift in perspective. And so Heather's mom uh, was doing battle with cancer, was trying to keep all the plates spinning with that and the kids in soccer and um, softball. And then my father, we thought he had pneumonia. He went in to, to get a chest x-ray and he was diagnosed with stage four kidney cancer that had metastasized to his whole body and his lungs were just loaded. Um, my dad was my best friend in the whole world. Uh, we did everything together. We hunted together. We fished together. We built stuff together. We fixed stuff together. He was my best buddy in the whole world. And the doctors gave him six months to live. Dad didn't make it six months. He made it six weeks to the day. And he lost his battle with cancer. And shortly after that, Heather's mom lost her battle with leukemia that would turn into lymphoma. And ultimately, a brain tumor would take her life. So to say our world was flipped upside down is quite an understatement. Um, it hurt. It was raw. With my dad's death, I sat at the graveside and trying not to break the chair, trying to be so, you know, just escape it so much that I really had a big binge. That would ultimately be one of the last times that I took narcotics at his at his uh, graveside. And I realized, like, I'm, my dad's gone. Like, we we talk this thing where life is precious and we're not promised tomorrow, but he's, like, gone. And, you know, I, I'm pretty strong in my faith. I know I'm going to see him again, but man, it sucked not to call him anymore and it, not to go places with him and not to take him for rides. And um, it really showed me that life is precious mm. and that we don't have tomorrow. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, how then you use this to eventually break your cycle, kind of bottoming out 
there, having your world turned upside down and using that as the catalyst for change. Because you did mention initially that you had an enormous binge. You, you said it was it was a big binge. So, you know, what what kind of flipped for you then? Was it, you know, just thinking about this isn't what they would want from me or maybe I don't want my kids to see me like this or what happened there, man? Yeah, so this is kind of wild to say. It's, I wish I could just say that, yeah a switch flipped on and I just wanted to live this vibrant life. But the truth was I, I was sitting at the kitchen table or sitting at, and on a chair at the kitchen table. And I never even had to say a word to Heather. She just kind of knew she came over to me. She grabbed the socks out of my hands. She got down on one knee, put my socks on. And I don't know what was special about this day. Um, nothing really sticks out to me, but she slid that sock on. She patted the side of my leg and she goes, you're all set. And all of a sudden this thing came over me like, oh my gosh, like she's got to plan my funeral. Like I'm not making it another year. And I never wanted to get healthy. I just wanted to give her space. We just, we couldn't catch up with this grieving. We didn't know what it was like to plan a funeral and the brunch and the newspaper obituary. And all I could think of is she's going to have to do this all again, like for the third time. And this time she would have to move on from that and raise two kids on her own. And the thought of that just, I mean, it sends chills down my neck now. So I had to do something um, just to space out funerals. I couldn't die yet. So I did what every smart person does. They go on YouTube and they find really good medical advice from some random influencer. <laughs> and I found this guy that had got bariatric surgery and he shot a video and the guy was just as big as I was, over 400 pounds. And a year later after surgery, he's running a marathon. Um, and it was so inspiring and so motivational to me. I'm like, this is it. This is what I have to do. So I... Um, this was this was in the phone book era. I opened the yellow pages. I found a place that does the surgeries. I went down. Um, I had to go for a couple like meetings, like group meetings, um, fill out a bunch of paperwork. I had everything in a big envelope, and all I had left to do was go to my doctor and have him sign the papers for it. And when I got in there that day, the nurse took my blood pressure, and it was two fifty five over one fifteen. And I was on two different blood pressure medicines. I was on a beta blocker and a calcium channel blocker. And my blood pressure was out of control. Of course, I always chalked it up to pain. You know, I was in pain. That's why this was happening. Um, on top of that, my, my heart rate was uh, over 125. He thought I was going to stroke out right there. He was getting ready to call 911. And of course, I start manipulating like, well, why don't we just wait? He goes, okay. Lay down on this exam table. I'll go see a few patients, come back, see if we can get your numbers down. So the numbers came down eventually. And he just sat me down. He said, look, it, you're too sick for surgery. Your heart's not going to make it. And even if it does, he's like, I don't know what you're going to do for the narcotics. Like you're on so much stuff. I don't even know if the anesthesia is going to work for you. So he denied me the surgery. And... Again, it was almost like a replay of the scale. I walked out of there. like I was frustrated. I felt hopeless. But at the same time, it's like, hey, I did what I had to do. Like I tried. Like can't hold it against me. It's Now it's his fault, not mine. But I went to bed that night and 
couldn't stop thinking about my mother-in-law. You know, my mother-in-law just loved life. She just loved life. And, you know, out of respect for her, you know, she fought so hard just to live one more day. The doctors even asked her <laughs> towards the end of her life, they're like, what are you hanging on for? She just wanted one more day with her family. And, you know, out of respect for that, I said, I got to try something. So I started doing Atkins. I went on, um, I guess you'd call it keto now. Um, and I did lose weight. The other thing that I did is I tried to start moving. And my exercise looks a little different um, then than it does now. But my exercise, I for some reason, I grabbed this journal that I had laying around. I, I wasn't definitely wasn't a writer, definitely not into diaries. But I just wrote down uh, from a song I had heard. I just put, this is the first day of the rest of your life. I put the date down. I put my weight down. And um, I just jotted down what I ate for the day. And then I had a goal to get out of my office chair twice instead of once. So basically, every time I got up out of my chair, I'd sit down and get up again. And I think that came from uh, from me breaking the chair. Like a week earlier, I pushed up so hard on the handles that I folded the handles out. And one of my colleagues said, ah, that chair was old anyways. And he gave me a new chair. And it really bugged me. But I figured if I could get up out of the chair once, then I could do it twice. And uh, because, I, because of the, you know, I did the low carb thing. I did everything wrong. But the cool thing was I at least connected what I was eating to my health. You know, it was doing something to my body. Um, so I did lose some weight doing that. Um, when you're over 400 pounds, a change in anything um, will help you lose weight. But I still was on over 20 prescriptions a month. And I sat down one night in front of Netflix like I did almost every night. And I saw this title called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. No clue what it was about. I, I just knew it described me. And I'm like, let's give it a watch. And uh, the, the film is about this guy, Joe Cross, who comes over from Australia. He spends 60 days consuming nothing but fruit and vegetable juice out of his juicer. Um, super inspiring, gets rid of a whole bunch of medical issues. It loses a bunch of weight. And along the way, he inspires other people to do it. Again, you know, my, especially at this point, you know, my meal consisted of meat, cheese. And if I was really being healthy, I'd have pork rinds and ranch dressing, you know, light ranch dressing. and. So I really, I tell people, this is kind of weird, but <laughs> if Joe Cross would have been putting dog turds in that machine, I would have done it because I didn't care what he was doing. I just wanted what he had. I wanted that energy. I wanted to feel better. And it didn't matter how he did it. So I did this without really thinking. Before the credits rolled, I had ordered a juicer. And uh, January 1st was right around the corner. So I decided to go on a 30-day a juice fast. Of course, no ramp up, probably binged really hard the day before. The last piece of meat that I've ever eaten uh, was about 10 and a half years ago at 11.59. Um, I had some raw fish, pickled herring. It was the last meat um, animal product that I've ever eaten. And at 12 o'clock, I went on my juice fast. And the first three days were absolute hell. I had no clue what I was doing. I came home with this little bag of produce. When I juiced it, a couple spoonfuls of juice came out. I'm like, we got to fix this. 
So we really learned how to start finding produce and that they do sell this stuff in the stores. We learned about farmer's markets and, you know, here's this big guy waving kale across the store, yelling at Heather, Heather, kale's on sale. I don't know what people (laughs) thought, but I got excited about produce. And by the fourth day, my hunger kind of subsided. And the fifth day, um, I've told the story hundreds of times. I still get choked up on this one. The fifth day, I woke up in the morning and I was in the same exact position that I had fallen asleep in the night before. And that's all I ever wanted. I just wanted to be able to sleep through the night. And uh, five days, five days is all it took. And I got a good night's sleep. And day six came along and I started, you know, forgetting to take medicine. My skin started clearing up. I was covered in acne and that was all leaving and uh, you know the crusty eyes were going away and i was breathing better and um the things were great and i started obviously losing weight um but at the same time we're getting really good at this juice thing i'm realizing i can't do this the rest of my life i gotta figure something else out but because i watched fat sick and nearly dead um a suggestion came up to watch forks over knives from netflix And I tell people that Forks Over Knives didn't just save my life, but it gave me a completely new one. Um, And I just learned that I could eat everything I was juicing and I could throw some whole grains and some legumes in there and some nuts and seeds. And that's all I really needed. And, you know, since then, it's been a learning journey. I did a lot of stuff wrong. That's a lot of tweaking. And I'm still, you know, I'm still kind of stumbling through this. But, you know, the food we eat, we don't give it enough credit. You know, we are what we eat. We say that. We say that we know broccoli is more healthy than bacon. But I don't think we really believe it until we experience, you know, the healing that comes from food. No question about it. And you're going through this profound transformation. I'm curious, what is Heather saying at this point? What's it like through her eyes? Well, through so for Heather. Um, I think in the beginning, I, cause I wasn't sold either. Like, okay, I'm going to do this thing for 30 days. I'm kind of an all in all out kind of person. So I think she knew I'd get through the 30 days, but then that was going to just fall by the wayside. Um, I don't think she realized that it was going to stick. I kind of didn't either. I mean, I'm not a real big, like new year's resolution person to begin with. I would always laugh at people. Um, but it worked. It stuck. So for Heather, um, they were still getting pizza. Heather was never really into like chicken wings. She always thought it was gross. Um, but she loved her pizza. So they would get pizza and I would be, cause I didn't know much. I only knew what I got from forks overnight. So I kept it really simple. And I think that was my success. I ate sweet potatoes. I ate brown rice. I ate beans, veggies, and fruit. But that's literally all I I didn't know what lentils were. I didn't know what tofu was. I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't, you know, fortunately, I didn't know that there was processed, you know, quote unquote, plant-based food. So I just kept it really simple and I just kept repeating it. And so I would pull my baked sweet potatoes out of the oven and all of a sudden they're starting to swipe them off my baking tray. So I would make some more. And then eventually I was making some nice stir fries with fresh veggies and then putting my rice in it. And then Heather would have another pan on the other side of the stove 
cooking some chicken up and then finally she's not doesn't really like cooking anyways and then finally she just like what's the point of putting the chicken in there let's just eat the same thing other story um so about two years um after i went plant-based she had some medical issues she had a fibroid the size of a grapefruit and she had to go in for a hysterectomy and she, I, we, you know, we went to the hospital after surgery. She kind of woke up and she just lost it. She goes, cause it reminded me of, it reminded her of, you know, the time her mother was in the hospital and she walked out of that hospital and she said, I don't, you know, I can't control everything in my life, but she goes, I'm going whole food plant-based, um, all in. And, you know, she flipped a switch right then and there. Cause she wants to do everything she can to stay healthy. So mm-hmm. she's a, uh, she's lost close to 100 pounds as well. And we didn't even know she was overweight because I was so big. So uh, together, we have lost 290 pounds together. together. So. 290 together. I mean, that is just an extraordinary feat for you guys, man. Um, I, I always felt once I was able to break my food addiction um, that there was an immense amount of freedom that came with that, not being a slave to the drive-through or the 7-Eleven any longer, to be able to just go about my day and not have to plan literally everything around getting my next fix. I didn't realize at the time what an, uh, what a weight that was putting on me. Did you feel that sense of freedom as well? Yeah, I you know with the food, but also the the drugs and the alcohol. It, it's people think that addicts are really lazy, but the reality is it's like running a small business. And in fact, we have a couple small businesses. I would argue it's harder, especially when you're trying to hide it really well. Um, you know, even the alcohol. Man, I had my little roots that I would like go around the back of a plaza, pop off the side where the employees work. I'd watch the ones come and sneak in, you know, and then you start buying in quantity because it would reduce the probability. Um, so yeah, the the drugs and the alcohol, and you know, there's always that paranoia that goes along with it. Um, and then the food, yeah, it just you have more time, um, you have more energy, all the way around. It makes your life easier for sure. And all the pain that you were in, once you began your 30-day juice fast and got deeper into your journey, how long did it take for that pain to evaporate? So it's, it's kind of it's complicated. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't like giving medical advice. I mean, definitely listen to your doctor. I will say that narcotics... Uh, for acute situations may or may not be helpful. I don't think they're quite as helpful as we make them out to be. But I will say this, if you get that little paper out that no one reads um, about the side effects, one of the first side effects of narcotics is joint pain. And uh, for me, um, I was on this stuff so long that actually the drugs were causing me more pain than the pain. Now, let's be clear. I've had, I don't even know how many surgeries right now. I've, I've had some major, major surgeries. I almost had my foot amputated uh, not even two years ago. So my bones are, are crumbling. Um, they, they had to fix the one because you could actually feel all the bone crumbs on, through my skin. So there is a, some pain, but I've learned to manage it different. I've learned that 
this need to escape, and this is bigger than just pain, uh, physical pain, this is emotional pain too, this this idea that we have to escape or, or you know, dodge the lows in life that got me in trouble. Um, we're going to have bad days. We're going to have days we hurt. But without them, we can't have the good days and the good the days we feel good, right? Um, so definitely eating an anti-inflammatory diet has gotten rid of, I'm going to just guess, 90% of my pain. Um, is it 100% gone? No, but I will tell you this. I didn't get into this part of my story. And to be honest with you, I've been lately kind of shying away from this because I want people to realize that the food is the key. But I'll give you a three-minute rundown of what happened to a crippled ADS patient um, if, if you have time. Go for it, my man. So 25 years old, they said, Tim, you're going to be in a wheelchair. In fact, when we interviewed my doctor for a film, he said that every time I came into that door, he'd look to see if I was in a wheelchair. And he kind of got a smile on his face because every month I wasn't in a wheelchair, he was actually surprised. Um, so Heather <laughs> was trying to get me to walk. And I really had no use to walk. Like, why would you walk for no reason? Like, you walk two places. You don't just walk to walk. So one day she says, hey, I'm taking the kids uh, to, to the trail. Would you like to come walk? It's a paved trail. And I, you know, made some stupid excuse. And they were almost out the door. And I said, hey, Hats, hold up a minute. I'm going to come with you. So the goal was that they shortened their walk up and we were going to go three quarters of a mile to turn around, come back to the car. And I didn't make it to the three quarter mile turnaround. And I have a picture. <laughs> My kids took a picture of this and I looked miserable and I'm sitting on a rock and I'm in severe pain. My knees hurt so bad. I just, I was miserable. At this point, I was in these things called immobilizers. So they actually locked my knees straight. So I was like walking on stilts. I came home that day. I pulled my immobilizers out. I packed my legs in ice and I started feeling sorry for myself. But I love a challenge. And I said, dang, that trail got the best of me. And I said, I'm going to go get that. I'm going to go get that walk. So a couple of days later, I went back and I walked to that rock. I turned around and I walked back. And I felt so proud of myself. I walked a mile and a half, you know, and I dodged everything I could to, to move. Um, and that walk would turn into weekend walks with Heather and the kids. And those walks turned into hikes, which they told me to stay on level ground. But I got some really good hiking boots and I started enjoying the outdoors again. But this time, instead of hunting, I was hiking. And one mile turned into two and chew turned into five. And before I knew it, I was hiking sometimes 10 miles on a weekend. And um, another one of those dominoes that tipped for me, my cousin came over and he showed me a picture. And this is about 10 years ago, actually, uh, maybe nine, nine years ago. He showed me a picture of the summit of an Adirondack mountain. And I said, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. And he goes, yeah, but you know what? The picture doesn't do it justice. You got to see it with your own eyes. And I said, okay, I'm going to go see it with my own eyes. So I went to the doctor. I told him I'd be climbing a mountain. And uh, instead of laughing at me or telling me I'm crazy, he goes, okay, we'll get you set up with better braces. 
So they casted my legs um, at a prosthetic place. They sent them off to California. They built me these really fancy carbon fiber titanium braces, taught me how to walk in them. And I started going to a, um, a high school after work and I just started walking upstairs. And you know, I could only do 10, 10 or 15 stairs and turned into 20, then 30, then 50, then hundreds. And before I knew it, I was just timing myself for hours, just walking up and down stairs, getting ready to go climb this mountain. And um, in 2012, we set off to the Adirondacks, about a six-hour trip. I made it about three-quarters of the way up the mountain, and I just couldn't go anymore. So we came all the way back home, and two weeks later, we drove back up there. and I summited my first uh, high peak, and it took about 13 hours, and I made it uh, 4,900 feet in the air. Wow. And as wow. I stood there in my braces, my braces had cut the backs of my legs pretty, pretty deep. And I just, I couldn't believe, you know, I'm standing what I thought was on top of the world, seeing a sight that very few people see. And I was supposed to be in a stinking wheelchair. And that just made, that just opened up so many possibilities because I stood up there thinking they were wrong. Like they were wrong. Um, and so those mountains became my best friends and I would ultimately bring Heather and the kids there. And I'm sure we're probably going to live there. We practically live there now. And I just fell in love with those mountains and, and the, the beauty, but the challenge it is that, that they bring along from there. Um, I was hiking pretty fast by now. Yeah, I had shed my braces. I was getting strong. I started uh, lifting weights, which helped my joints substantially. And I came home with this idea. I'm like, Heather, we should run a 5K. And she goes, that's like longer than a marathon. We don't run. And I'm like, we should at least try. So she said, all right. And we have this little block that we ran on and uh, we worked our butts off. And to this day, my favorite finish line that I've ever crossed was our first 5K together. We got so emotional um, that people thought we got bad news out on the course. And, you know, from there, I kind of gave her a nudge on the way back home. And I said, how about a 10K? She goes, are you crazy? I almost threw up. Like, I am not doing a 10K. Two months later, we ran our first 10K together uh, to benefit the cancer hospital that her mom was in. And on the way home from there, I gave her another nudge. And I'm like, how about a half marathon? She's like, you're nuts. I'm out. Um, funny thing is, on my dresser, I had my handicap parking pass. And I had hung on to that thing because that was like my security blanket. That's, you know, I always had a place to park with that thing and I didn't have to worry about walking too far. But obviously, I didn't need it anymore. So I just left it on my dresser. And it was about to expire in September, which happens to be the same month as one of our big races around Niagara Falls, the mighty Niagara. And I'm like, how cool would it be to park legally in a handicap spot while I run my first half marathon? I knew it would be really hard. So I took that handicap pass. I taped a picture of Heather's mom and my dad and my family uh, on the pass. I punched a hole in it and I wore it around my waist for my first half marathon. And, um, you know, from there, I, I've done marathons and that stuff is all cool. But yeah, man, 
But probably like the stuff that I feel matters most are are the are the things that maybe you know don't don't get the medals and don't get the the big stories. Uh, I remember for our anniversary, I wanted to um, take Heather to New Hampshire, and I just kind of mentioned, man, it would be super cool to climb Mount Washington. That's the highest peak on the East Coast. And she goes, well, let's do it. I'm like, serious? So what's cool? I told you how she used to put my socks and shoes on me. We're up there, uh, Tuckerman's Ravine. We had just crossed it. We're getting close to the summit, doing a scramble. We're pretty, pretty tired. We sat down to eat an apple, and um, I got to return the favor um, for Heather for putting my socks on all those years. She was struggling with her backpack, and I got to help her with her backpack. But we were 6,700 feet in the air. And that's the kind of stuff that's cool. I know uh, that the trail, the next time me and the kids got together on a trail, they were actually my pacers for a 50-mile ultra run. Um, and we all worked together to get me to the finish line. And that stuff was cool. And, you know, the the idea of, you know, my metabolic numbers, I'm off. I think the insurance company spent almost $20,000 just on pharmaceuticals in 2009. Um, in 2015 and 16, when I got my medical stuff released, they had spent $120 combined for vitamin B. So I was off all my meds. Um, all those doctor visits were gone. You know, all that stuff was gone. And I got my life back, you know? Bro, you you got a whole new life. You didn't just get it back. You got a whole new life. You are inspiration, my friend. Like, you have given me chills. Ordinarily, um, with these interviews, give you a little peek behind the curtain. I, I keep them a little bit more conversational, man. But I'm just sitting here enthralled by your story and everything that you have gone through. And I know that one of the things also that you love in life, Tim, also is to help other people experience the same, the same reason why I do this show. It's the same reason why you've opened the Flourish Cafe in Lancaster, New York, where you are. We've got a link to that in the episode notes, but also why you're doing the Thrive Against All Odds Summit coming up beginning on October 17th. Um, don't have a whole lot of time remaining here today, man, but tell us about this summit and you know the amazing speakers, the inspiration, and you know who's the prime candidate for the summit? Is it guys like you and I used to be? No. Well, I mean, it can be, but the goal is to find a place for everyone to kind of follow along. So basically, we kind of recreated my journey. Um, so, and then kind of take people through, you know, day one is how do we end up here? I know you probably get this feeling too. I feel like, you know, over time, we our health and, and wellness kinds of erodes and we wake up one day and it's like, wait, what? What happened? How did I get here? So uh, day one, we talk about how we got here. Um, day two, why is it so hard to get out of here? We'll talk about pleasure trap and stuff. Uh, day three, we come up with a game plan and a, and a plan of action. Um, day four, we figure out what we need to stop doing. Day five is what we need to start doing. Um, and then from there, we talk about setbacks because the truth is, and Chuck, you know this, it's not this linear path. We we seem to think we see all these before and after, you know, perfect, especially with social media. We look at these people that have these perfect lives and, well, it's so easy for them, but it's not. And things are going to get in our way and challenges are going to pop up. 
And we need to like get in front of them. And we need to realize this isn't going to be this perfect path. You know, I still struggle. Like, I'm just being real. Like, I still struggle. Yep, I'm not addicted to Whoppers anymore. But man, you bring a bag of cashews near me and it's game on. Um, So I say I'm still definitely a food addict. I'm just addicted to better stuff um, that's more calorie dense. And so it's, it's not this picture perfect journey that we're on. There's ups and downs and highs and lows, and we got to take them all. Although we talk about bouncing back from setbacks, and then uh, we'll end up uh, talking about how to keep this sustainable. Because the truth is, um, a lot of people can lose weight, but keeping it off over a period of time is where the lifestyle comes from. And I know I don't want me to go off on a rant. That's why they call me Fat Man Rants. But the lifestyle, if, if you guys, you know, if the listeners get one thing out of this, like no one wakes up one day and wants to be a drug addict or wants to be over 400 pounds. Like that's just, no one's got those dreams. It just happens. And by the same token, you can't just wake up one day and say, I want a new lifestyle. It doesn't happen either. But the cool thing about it, if you reduce the lifestyle, a lifestyle is made up of a series of routines, and the routines are made up of a series of habits, and the habits are made up of a series of choices. So the encouraging part of this whole thing is that all you have to do is make one good choice and repeat it. And the good choice that you need to worry about is your next one. It doesn't matter what next, you know, tomorrow is. It doesn't matter what next year is. It doesn't matter about none of that matters. Your next choice needs to be the healthiest choice. And the thing is, um, whether you have 100 pounds to lose or 50 pounds to lose or no pounds to lose, you just need to get healthy. The process is identical. Just eat whole plant foods. And time will take care of everything else. There you go, man. I love the way that you put that. And I would love to have you back. I feel like there's a lot more you and I could get to. Uh, This addiction thing and overcoming it and thriving, it's such a complex topic um, that I would love to spend some more time talking to you about and helping others uh, with, man. But Tim, I will tell you, my friend, this has just been tremendous. And I cannot thank you enough for the time. And thank you for inspiring me today. Thank you for inspiring us today. Man, this has just been one of the more epic stories that have ever been shared in the nearly 500 episodes that we've done this show, man. And um, my hat is off to you, my friend. You truly are someone who we should all be looking towards. So thank you, my friend. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. And there's, there's, you know, if people get one thing, there's always hope. You know, you're never too far gone. So... I love that, man. You are spot on. You are spot on. You got a bright future ahead of you, my friend, including another appearance here on the show, Tim. Thank you so much, everybody. Go sign up for the Thrive Against All Odds Summit. The link is in the episode notes. Tim, my man, thank you again. So good. So good. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. I really appreciate it. 